1 John chapter 4, if you have your Bible, I invite you to be turning there to a section that may very well be one of the most extensive and important sections on this subject of the love of God. And we've been in this passage for a couple of weeks now. You know, when you think of the love chapter of the Bible, more than likely, you would probably be drawn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and Paul's treatment of the subject of the love of God and what it looks like and what real love is and how it's demonstrated in action. And yet, there's nowhere else in the Bible that you can turn uh, where you see this word agape, agape love, mentioned uh, more times than right here in this passage of Scripture. So I think that a very strong argument could be made that 1 John 4 is equally the love chapter of the Bible. And love is the circulatory system in many ways of the local church. Dr. Chuck Swindoll said that as a congregation grows in size and significance, as its leadership passes from the passionate founding generation to another generation, one of the first things to suffer is not sound doctrine, it's not solid preaching, not even the priority of evangelism. He said one of the first things to wane is love. Now, the irony is that a church can have all of those things. You can have the sound doctrine and solid preaching and keep the, you know, the importance of personal evangelism on the front burner. You can have all of those things in the church, and yet the atmosphere of love be lacking. And that was something that was true of a local church that we read about in the New Testament in uh, Revelation chapter 2, the church at Ephesus that Jesus writes a letter to, and the issue in Ephesus was that the church had abandoned the love that it had at first. It had a lot of good things going on, but it had lost its first love. It had left its first love. And so Jesus, in his counsel to the church, was to remember, remember the way that God has loved you in Christ. Remember from where you've fallen. Repent and do the works that you did at the first. And so his counsel to the church at Ephesus was that they needed to recapture their first love, the very kind of love for God and love for one another that the Apostle John describes right here in 1 John chapter 4. And so love must never be kept on the back burner or become something that a Christian or a local church merely assumes. It's something that we've got to be intentional about. We've got to keep it before us at all times and must never take it for granted because we can believe all the right things, do all the right things, but if we have not love, it's all in vain. And that's something that Paul does say in 1 Corinthians 13. So once more, the Apostle John reminds us in this passage, as he has frequently throughout this letter, beloved, let us love one another. Let's love one another. So I want to read this morning from verse 12 all the way through the end of chapter 4 down to verse 21. The Scripture says that no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. 
And so we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And so I want to speak to you from this thought this morning, abiding in love. And you'll notice in these verses that the word abide is used at least six times. This is one of John's favorite words, and he uses it approximately 22 times in 1 John. It's a word that he also uses in the Gospel of John, and in particular, chapter 15, where he describes the nature of a believer's relationship with Jesus and whether or not we bear fruit. He says it's an issue of whether or not we abide in Christ. In that passage, Jesus said, abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And then Jesus says, I'm the vine and you're the branches and whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Listen to this. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from abiding in Christ, you and I can do absolutely nothing. What does that word abide mean? It means, it means to remain. And so it's true uh, in the sense that we are in Christ. That's a statement of fact that's true of every believer in Jesus Christ. And yet it's also a statement concerning our conduct. It means that as we abide in Christ, we're intentionally behaving according to his character. And this is not something that we do in our own energy or our own effort because we can't do it. It's only as the life of God in me is manifesting itself through me. And this is especially true when it comes to love. Uh, think about this. If you've got a hose connected to a water supply, the result is going to be that water from that water supply will flow through that hose. Same thing's true in the electrical world. If a wire is connected to some type of electrical source, then power from that source will flow through that wire because it's merely a conduit. Uh, in in the, wor the world of, of vines and trees, the language of John 15, if a branch is connected to a root and a trunk system of a particular tree or plant or whatever, then the sap of that tree, it will flow through that branch as that branch is connected to the root system. And so spiritually then, if a man or a woman is truly connected to the loving Father through faith in God the Son by means 
of the indwelling spirit who's come to take up residence in your life as a believer, then here's what that means as far as love is concerned. The love of God, the supernatural kind of love, uh, agape love will flow through your life and it will flow outward toward others. And this is the kind of uh, love that John is describing here in 1 John chapter 4. Abiding in love. Now, this is an issue that's connected to at least three things. Number one, it's an issue of who we know. Abiding in love is an issue of who we know. You'll notice there in verse 12 that the apostle says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, then God abides in us. His love is perfected in us. And by this, we know that we abide in him. So there is a sense in which the way that we love one another, it provides a tangible, visible expression of the way that God has so loved us. It takes the unseen and makes it seen. Uh, No one has seen the invisible God, but the love that we have for one another in the family, this, this gives a very visible witness to the world around us. That's why Jesus said in John 13, by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. And so it gives the world something to see, something that it doesn't see anywhere else. There's a supernatural dynamic. There's a supernatural quality. There's a life and the love that's characteristic of the family of God. And this is the fruit of the Spirit that's being produced within us, which is why the Apostle John emphasizes the gift of the Spirit there in verse number 13. When he says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his Spirit. So this is an issue of spiritual possession. Do I know God? Can I say with confidence that I've truly come to know the Lord? And that's the single most important question that you could ever ask in life. I'm not asking if you know some things about God. Uh, if you've been around the church for any number of time, amount of time, you, you've come to know some things about God. You can, you can talk about some facts, but I'm asking this question. Do you know him in a very real, personal way? relational sense have you come to personally know God and do you live with that confidence that's why John's written his letter here by the way he says in verse 13 of chapter 5 I've written these things so that you may know that you have eternal life I've written to those of you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know something that you may know with confidence that you've come to know the Lord. And so salvation is not a hope-so issue. It is a no-so issue. You see, some of you here this morning, maybe your salvation, if I were to say, uh, do you know that you're saved? You would say, well, I hope I am. But you can't say with confidence that you are. Well, God wants you to be able to say with confidence that you are saved and that you know him. You say, well, how can I have that confidence? Well, have you repented of your sin and placed your faith and trust in Jesus, believing that he died for your sin upon the cross and that he's the risen Lord? God's raised him from the dead and you've confessed him. And if you have truly come to faith in Jesus Christ, let me tell you something that's happened. The only way that that's been made possible, a reality in your life, is because of the work of the Spirit of God who went to work in you and, and Jesus, uh, this is explained in John chapter 3 with the conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus. It's what being born again is. It's the work of the Spirit. 
And so John is referencing then this gift of the Holy Spirit. And notice how the gift of the Spirit is connected with divine love there in verse number 13. This is something that the Holy Spirit produces within a believer. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And if you know what Galatians 5, 22 and 23 says about the fruit of the Spirit, what is the first fruit that sort of heads the list? It's, it's love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And then followed by joy and peace and patience and kindness, and goodness, and on down the line, gentleness and self-control, and against such there is no law. But, but it's the love of God that's produced in you by the Spirit of God. You see, the Spirit of God does a number of things in your life as a believer. Number one, it's the Spirit of God who adopts you, brings you into the family of God. We refer to this as the baptism of the Spirit. There's some who would say, well, the baptism of the Spirit, is that something that happens sort of as a second blessing? Is that something that happens later on in a Christian's life? No, listen, as I understand it in the New Testament, you have been fully immersed in the life of God the moment you came to faith in Jesus Christ. God gave you of himself. His Spirit came to take up residence in you as a believer. And so in many ways, the second blessing is just realizing what you've been given in the first. But here's the issue. How much of yourself have you given to the Spirit? Are you filled with the Spirit? The filling of the Spirit means I'm under His control and His direction. I understand that He's at work in my life and His purpose is now to conform me to the image of Christ. God wants you to be like His Son and He'll use circumstances in your life and He'll use people in your life and all of the happenings to conform you, to mold you, to shape you. His word, he uses this in your life. And so all of the Christian life then is there's this sanctifying work that's going on in my life where God is ironing out all the wrinkles in my life and he's conforming me to the image of Jesus. He said, well, how will I know I'm being conformed to the image of Jesus? Well, the fruit of the spirit is that fruit showing up in greater quantity and quality in your life. Oftentimes, we're enamored with the giftings of the Spirit more so than we are the fruit of the Spirit. And you can read about the gifts of the Spirit. The Scripture says that the, the, the Spirit gives gifts to believers for the purpose of edifying and building up the body of Christ. And every single person who's a member of the family of God has been gifted in some way, not for their own sake, but for the sake of the family of God. But often, we become so enamored with the gift that we overlook the, the fruit and so before the gifts will ever be used in a very powerful way to the glory of God, the fruit has to be produced in my life. And in a very real sense, the fruit is more important than the gift because who I am, God is far more concerned with who I am and who I'm becoming than what I do. And let me tell you something, apart from the, gifts of, uh, apart from the fruit of the Spirit, what we tend to do with the giftings of the Spirit, we, we make them all about us for our own self-glory. And they become a thing of pride and contention. One of the issues that was going on in the Corinthian church, by the way, they were divided and fussing and fighting and they were putting all of their emphasis on the giftings of the Spirit and they were a divided church, a proud church, needed to be humbled. What's the answer to that? And by the way, what is revival but this work of the Spirit in our hearts where the Spirit of God is producing fruit to the glory of God in our life? And heading the list is this love, the love that John is describing here in 1 John chapter 4. So spiritual possession, 
By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. There's been a deposit made in your life. You as a believer, we as the church, we are the temple of the Spirit of God who's come to make his dwelling in us. And so there's this spiritual possession that John emphasizes, and then he follows that up with personal confession in verse 14. We've seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. And whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And so you'll notice those words, testify and confesses there. Uh, John could testify, he could bear witness to the fact that God the Father sent God the Son to be the Savior of the world. And it's the essence of the gospel to say that Jesus Christ came to be the Savior of the world. The world of sinful people, a world of men and women who are separated from God, in bondage to sin, in bondage to death, shackled by the evil one, under his cruel dominion. God the Father has sent God the Son to be the Savior of sinners who are living out their existence in such a miserable, hopeless existence. Aren't you glad that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world? I love that song by Crowder. I think it goes something like this. He came for criminals and every Pharisee. He came for hypocrites, even someone like me. You carried sin and shame, the guilt of every man, the weight of all I've done, nailed into your hands. Folks, we must never lose sight of the fact that our gospel is for the whole world. The Father has sent the Son... to be the savior of the world. So salvation is free. Salvation is full to the one who believes. Oh, but it's not automatic because a person has to repent and a person has to believe the gospel. Christ must be received in faith. Notice whoever confesses Jesus as the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And so that's repentance and faith. There's gotta be a personal confession of faith in Jesus Christ for a person to be saved. And the promise is God abides in those who have truly come to faith in Jesus and they in him. So then this issue of abiding in love, it's an issue of who we know, spiritual possession, personal confession, and then tangible expression. Verse 16, John says, so we've come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. So his application here, the one who's truly come to know God and the one in whom the Spirit of God has come to dwell, then this person will abide in God's character and express his love. They simply become the conduit, the pipeline of the love of God for everybody else. God has so loved me in this way, and the love of God, it's not something that he gave me in a sense that he wants me to pay it back as much as he wants me to pay it forward. There's a difference in paying something back versus paying something forward. You've gotten caught in one of those pay it forward deals at Starbucks or the drive-thru. I did that one time. You know, somebody, you know, had had purchased, you know, I was the car behind them and I got up to the window and they had paid my tab. And so I was like, well, I'm going to pay it forward. I said, well, I'm going to get the car behind me. And then it's like, "Mm, it's a family of 12. I was like, man. (laughs) And if it's a Starbucks, you got to take out a small business loan, you know, just to be able to pay it forward. 
How is it that I'm paying the love of God forward in my life? How is it that I'm being a conduit of blessing and love for others who are in my life? This is what John is calling us to here. And so this is something that should compel us to action as it relates to loving our neighbors. And so abiding in love, this is an issue of who we know. Now notice the second thing. John says that it's an issue of how we grow. Not simply an issue of who I know, but it's an issue of how I grow. He says this in verse 17, by this is love perfected with us. So he's using this language of perfection again, not perfection in the sense of, well, you know, you, you never make mistakes and experience failures and setbacks in your life. No, but this, is, this, this word that's used here has this idea of something that's being brought to maturity. Love is being brought to maturity, being complete. God has something in mind for me and you and the way that he wants to use us in relation to one another. He wants our love to be brought to completion. He wants his love to be perfected in us as we relate to one another. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. So love is something to be perfected in my life. And I should ask this question, am I growing in my love for God? Am I growing in my love for other people? And this is the issue of sanctification. Uh, Am I growing, deepening in the love that I have for the Lord as I consider the way that he's loved me, as I spend time with him? It's that old song expressed, the longer I serve him, the sweeter he grows. And so each day we're being made into the image of Jesus through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And in this sense, love is being perfected. And so notice a couple of things about this. First, there's a reason mentioned in verse 17. By this, love is perfected with us. And here's the reason. So that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. God wants you and I to live with confidence as far as the future is concerned. And so growing in love has this practical benefit of providing us with this confidence when we stand before the Lord one day in a future day of judgment. God wants us to look forward to the future with a sense of anticipation rather than trepidation. And I can't help but think that oftentimes we think about what's going on in the world around us and we think about the future and we're concerned for what the future might hold for our children and for our grandchildren. And if we're not careful, we can find ourselves living in this sense of unhealthy fear and anxiety. But when the love of God goes to work in my life, what that does is that it gives me a growing sense of confidence and anticipation as far as the future is concerned, not fear and trepidation. And so this is a verse that reminds us that every person one day is going to stand and ultimately give an account to God of his or her life in the day of judgment. Now, the thought of that, is that something that produces confidence in you or is that something that produces fear in you? If you don't know Jesus, if you're not a Christian, if you're not saved, if you're an unbeliever, then the thought of standing before him in judgment ought to be something that fills your heart with fear. Because he's a holy God. And the Bible says that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Not only is our God a God of love, but the Bible also says that our God is a God, he's a consuming fire. God is light. 
God is holy. He's light. In him there is no darkness at all. And all of us one day are going to stand before him. But for those who are in Jesus Christ, those of us in whom love is being brought to maturity and completion, divine love has gone to work in my life. This gives me confidence for the future day of judgment. You know, the Bible speaks of two judgments. There's the Bema Seat judgment, which applies to believers. And then there's the great white throne judgment, which applies to those who are unbelievers. Believers are not going to be present at the great white throne judgment. This is for those who die without Christ. But we are going to stand before Jesus. All of us are going to stand before him. And believers are going to one day give an account to him for what we did with what he entrusted us with. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be ashamed when I stand before the Lord of the church. In that future day, I want to be able to stand in confidence before the Lord Jesus, and I want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. It's something that the Apostle Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You can turn over there for just a moment uh, and see this for yourself. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he's talking about the foundation that has been laid for the church in Jesus no other foundation can be laid than the foundation which has already been laid. And you think about Paul as a pastor and a church planter and a missionary. Everywhere he went, he went and, and planted churches and there was a foundation established. And so those who were future leaders in those congregations, those who were brought into those congregations, they would build upon that foundation which had been laid. There's a sense in which we're building upon a foundation that was laid for us more than 120 years ago. Uh, a church here in High Point, 1900, had a burden for a particular part of our city where there was no gospel presence or gospel witness. And so there was a Sunday school mission that was established on a particular part of town, and that Sunday school mission became Green Street Baptist Church. And 120 years later, here we are building upon the foundation that's been laid. And what we bring to the table by means of our gifts and our resources, the way we steward our time and the way that we serve and relate to one another, what we're doing is we're building upon that foundation. And so that's why Paul goes on and he says, everybody needs to take care, take heed how they build upon this foundation. Verse 11, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will dis disclose it. What day? Well, the day when we stand before Jesus, the Bema Seat. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So here's the question that we ought to ask ourselves. How are we building upon the foundation which has already been laid? What am I doing with what God's entrusted me with? What am I doing with my money? What am I doing with my time? How involved am I in service? What, what am I doing to take the gospel to my neighbors? 
See, all these are issues of obedience in the Christian's life, and these are of critical importance. And folks, here's an incentive for us. One day we're going to stand before the Lord of the church, and we're going to give an account to him. That ought to be an incentive for you whenever you get sideways with somebody else in your relationships. Because one day both of us are going to stand before the Lord of the church, and we're going to give an account to him. So we've got incentive then, don't we? So love, as love is being perfected, being brought to maturity in my life, John says that this gives me greater and greater confidence as it relates to the future day of judgment. Ultimately because, look at verse 17, because as he is, so also are we in this world. Understand how I've been loved by God. What's true of Jesus is now true of me in this world. Jesus was accepted by the Father Now, as someone who has been brought into the family, in Jesus Christ, I've been accepted by the Father. And that gives me a great sense of confidence as I live my life as a Christian, to know that I've been loved by God the Father. What's true of him is true of me. Listen to me. The righteousness of Jesus Christ has been given to me and given to you as a believer in Jesus. And that's something that ought to fill you with confidence, especially whenever you trip up Especially when you sin in your speech and you sin in ways that you know, Lord, forgive me. I can confess that. Thank God he forgives me. But the righteousness of Jesus Christ has been credited to my account. And that's something that gives me confidence because I know that when I stand before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, I'm not going to receive his commendation on the basis of anything that I've done for myself, but only by means of my faith in what he did for me. And that's the gospel. And so what does this do? Well, you'll, you'll notice the result. The result, if the reason is confidence for the future, the result of me growing in love will be the casting out of fear in my life. There is no fear in love, verse 18, because perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So we know that God abides in us and we're abiding in his love as his love is being brought to maturity and completion in my life and this gives me growing confidence for the day of judgment when I stand before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and it casts out fear and banishes all fear out of my life. I think one of the most powerful things that I've ever been a part of, I was a part of yesterday right here at the end of our final session in that Stand Courageous conference because the altar here, the front of the church, there were fathers and sons, and fathers had the opportunity to speak words of blessing and affirmation over their sons. And I mean, the whole front of the church here was full of men laying hands on their sons. I saw grown men in our church who have not seen shed a tear in the nine, nearly nine years that I've been here crying, weeping yesterday as they're speaking words of blessing and words of affirmation over their sons. And so much of what we're dealing with as a nation, listen to me, we're seeing people who are so confused because they've grown up never having received the affirmation of a father or the blessing of a father. And they're questioning everything in life. But doesn't it do something for you as a Christian to to see what John says in this passage here? 
as he is in this world, so also are we. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. I've received my Father's blessing in Jesus Christ. I've received his smile upon my life in Jesus Christ. And that's something that casts out fear and insecurity in my life and gives me confidence. And that's the secret for joy. So abiding in love, this is an issue of who we know. It's an issue of how we grow. And then one final thing, notice that it's also an issue of what we show. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. So here's how we're paying it forward. I never would have loved him had he not loved me first. And because he has so loved me and has so forgiven me, and has so brought me into his family, and he's given me his spirit. Now, I can be a conduit of his love toward others in my life. And I can show that love. If anyone says I love God and hates his brother, John says he's a liar. It's not the first time he said this. He, he says this back in chapter 3. But listen to his practical application here as he says, he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So John says, don't tell me that you love God if you're not loving those who are right there in front of you. In many ways, it's easy for a person to say, yeah, I love God. But it's another thing entirely for you to prove that you love God through the way that you're loving the people that God has placed in your life. And see, that's where the rubber really meets the road. That's not an easy thing to do. It's an impossible thing to do. And that's why you need his spirit. And you need to resign to his spirit and the control of the spirit and surrender to the spirit's leadership and control and direction in your life as he loves others through you. But he loved me because he is love and because he first loved me, I'm now confident and I can express that love to others in my life. So this is the issue then of what we show. Provides me with incentive. John's making this logical argument here, both as it relates to people in the family, but we know that Jesus also said that it ought to apply to the way we relate to those outside the family. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, you ought to love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Those who are antagonistic toward your faith. Uh, those who would seek to do you harm. Jesus says, here's what you do because I have so loved you and you're in my family. You love and you're commanded to love even those who are your enemies. And so this is not optional. This is a matter of obedience. And so what John is calling us to here is love in action. That's a powerful, powerful passage of what love in action is. Aren't you grateful that the love of God is love in action, so much so that he sent his son to die for your sins? Love in action. Uh, how did love for Jesus, what did it lead Mary of Bethany to do but to bring her alabaster box and break it at his feet? Or the widow, and she gave her two mites. What was it that led her to do that but love for God? Love in action. It's one thing to say I love, but it's another thing to demonstrate it. Agape love is selfless, others-oriented love that gives and gives and gives with no thought of receiving in return. Max Licato, he 
<clears throat> once told a story about a shy and a little, quiet little boy uh, named Chad. And uh, he was the kind of little fellow that was often overlooked by the crowd, often made to be the butt of everybody's jokes, often picked on by his peers. Well, one day he came home from school and he told his mother that he would like to make a valentine for everybody in his class. And her heart sort of sank and she thought to herself, man, I wish he wouldn't do that. She watched all the other children as they walked home from school and her little Chad was always behind, always left out. All the other boys and girls talked with one another and played with one another, but Chad was never included. Nevertheless, she decided that she would go along with what he wanted to do, and so she purchased the paper and the glue and all the crayons. And for three whole weeks, night after night, little Chad worked hard to make 35 valentines for his classmates. As Valentine's Day arrived, he was full of excitement, and he carefully placed those valentines in a bag, and he bolted out the door on his way to school. His mom decided that it'd be a good idea to bake his favorite cookies, which she would have waiting on him later that day, because she knew that he'd be disappointed when he came home from school. It pained her heart to think that he wouldn't get any valentines, and so that afternoon, she had the milk and the cookies there on the table waiting for him when he got home. And finally, when she heard the voices coming down the street, she looked out the window to see the other children laughing, having the best time as usual. And there was Chad in the rear all by himself. Well, she fully expected him to burst into tears just as soon as he got inside. His arms were empty. There were no valentines, and when the door was opened up, she choked back her own tears. And she said, honey, I, I made some cookies for you, but he hardly heard her words. Just marched right on by, his face beaming, and all he could say was, not a one, not a single one. Her heart immediately sank, and then she heard him add these words, I didn't forget a one. Not a single one. And the fact that he didn't receive any Valentines, that was no thought. It was the fact that he had given, and he had given, and he had given. And John says that's what God has done for us. You know something? We didn't ask him for the sunrise this morning, but guess what? He gave it. Amen. Why? Because God is love. And he's giving, and he's giving, and he's giving. You didn't ask him for that breath you just took. But guess what? God gave it anyway, didn't he? Why? Because he is love. And he's giving. And he's giving. And he's giving. And we didn't ask him for the rain this weekend. But guess what? He sent it on the earth anyhow. Why? Because God is love. And he's always giving. And he's always giving. And he's always giving. And when I was unlovable and far from him... Listen, here's how the agape love of God was made manifest. That God the Father sent God the Son into a world of reprobates deserving of judgment. And Jesus went all the way to the cross and with his dying breaths he could say, not a one, not a single one has been lost. That's divine love. That's the love of God. And folks, that's the love 
that ought to compel you and I to action as the people of faith. He's a well of eternal life that never runs dry. A fountain of love. And he's come to live within your heart, which means you're never without resources when it comes to those difficult relationships when people are unloving. And when you've been unloving, you can be forgiven because God is a fountain of endless grace and that gives us confidence. Let's stand for prayer this morning. Aren't you grateful for the love of God? Oh, it's greater far than tongue or pen could ever tell. Goes far beyond the highest star, reaches to the lowest hell. Abiding in love, it's an issue of who we know. Do you know the Lord? Can you say with confidence that you know that you're saved? If not, then don't leave without getting that issue settled. Today, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. God loves you. He will forgive you. Will you repent and turn to him in faith, believing that he died for your sins, that God raised Christ from the dead? Confess him as your Lord and as your Savior. Christian, listen, this issue of love, it's also an issue of how we grow. Are we growing in love for one another? Are we growing in love for God and love for the family? and love for those who are far from God, who desperately need Him. You know something? The most loving thing that you can do is to share your faith with someone else. That's the most loving thing that you could ever do for a person, is to speak the truth to that person, to point that person to Jesus. Don't let the enemy silence your witness. Don't let him intimidate you into silence. Trust him and Ask those in your life where they are in terms of their relationship with God. Ask them what they believe about spiritual things. What's the worst that can happen? They reject you? They reject your love? Be compelled. And then this issue of abiding in love being an issue of what we show. How is it that we can demonstrate love in action to one another? Maybe forgiving Maybe giving where there's a need. How can we as a church, when we scatter this week, in Jesus' name, selflessly love our neighbors? This is what divine love calls us to. Lord, in Jesus' name, thank you for your word today. God, we've been challenged. May your word and your spirit go to work in our hearts and lives. For Jesus' sake, amen.